0: a seat, and as you do, you're welcome to grab your outlines out of your handouts. And you'll see that we are continuing a series called Faith Conversations. And what we'd love to do, and we do this from time to time, is we have kind of that seminary level, that, uh, that, that, that level of discussion about things that are very, very relevant, that are very sort of central to our human experience and our faith journey, and we wanna have an intelligent conversation about these things. And, and a few weeks ago, we started this. We started talking about the Bible, what it is and how we view it. And then last week, we talked about Jesus and the centrality and the, the, the importance uh, supremacy even of the, the, the position that he fills and the role that he plays, who he is. If you miss those messages, please go back online and track with us because they really are. They're so core. They're so foundational for us. Today, we're talking about the issue of pain. And uh, in, in sort of a preparation for this message, I want you to know, I was just thinking, how do I do some research for this? I googled wedding fails and I watched, I watched some videos on Tuesday afternoon. If you walked by my office and heard me laughing, that's what was going on. And uh, it, you know, it just has to do with this idea of Murphy's Law, right? And, and you're probably familiar with that. If anything can go wrong, it will go wrong. And the reality of our experience as humans is that things often do go wrong and they go wrong for the wrong people and and there's all kinds of difficulty and challenge. There's all kinds of pain and suffering. And in my faith journey, Coming to faith in Jesus, one of the wrestling places for me, one of the the challenges that I had to tackle was this issue of recognizing that there is so much pain and suffering in the world, and how do you justify a belief in a good and loving God with that reality? And so what we want to do is we want to recognize that these things are difficult. The Bible calls us to love God with all of our strength and all of our soul and and with all of our mind, right? And so we want to bring our mind to some of these questions. The Apostle Paul actually challenges us to to give some test to it. He he says in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test all things, hold fast to what is good. And so that's what we wanna go after today. We wanna challenge ourselves to bring our mind to these kinds of questions. Many of you know this. The modern Christianity was all about intellect, and it was very low on experience of the presence of God. And then, as a the shift happened, postmodern faith was uh, very low on intellect, very high on experience of God. We recognize that a full faith requires both—that we would engage our mind and we would go after experiencing God's presence. That's what we do here at Overlay Christian Church, and and we're going to continue that journey. So. I wanna get into this discussion, but I will give this disclaimer. If right now you are in a season of pain, and I know that many of you are, then I do want you to know that this conversation, it won't prove to be especially helpful for you. And it doesn't mean that it's not true. I find it's really easy for us to talk about pain and suffering in general And to have an academic or theological conversation about pain and suffering in general. But when it's specific to us, when we are right in the middle of that valley, it's not that these things cease to be true. It's just that often they cease to be helpful. And so if that's where you are right now, if that's where you're finding yourself in your journey, then please don't leave today without allowing somebody to come around you and lay a hand on your shoulder and pray for you to lift you up to the Lord. We've got a prayer room on the second floor. We'd love to have you stop by because we want to minister to your heart if that's where you are today. Okay? So let's jump into this conversation. Uh, it, there are some, some books on the back of your outline that have been very helpful for me as I've wrestled through and grappled with issues uh, regarding pain and suffering in the world. Lee Strobel, in a book he wrote called The Case for Faith, tells this story. He's He's having a conversation with a man named Templeton. Templeton was Billy Graham's right hand, but he turned agnostic in his faith journey. And so Lee Strobel asks him, was there one thing in particular that caused you to lose your faith in God? This was his answer. It was a photograph in Life magazine. The photograph was a picture of a woman in northern Africa. They were experiencing a devastating drought, and she was holding her dead baby in her arms and looking up to heaven with the most forlorn expression. I looked at it and I thought is it possible to believe that there is a loving or caring creator when all this woman needed was rain? How could God do that to this woman? Who runs the rain? I don't. You don't. He does, or that's what I thought. But when I saw that photograph, I immediately knew it was not possible for this to happen and for there to be a loving God. There was no way. Who else but a fiend Could destroy a baby and virtually kill its mother with agony when all that was needed was rain. It's gonna be good. (laughs) All right, I hope you're filling in the blanks. I hope you're following along. The first filling is this, point number one. The outrage at the unfairness of the universe is itself an argument for a good God. Let me say that again. The outrage at the unfairness of the universe is itself an argument for the existence of a good and loving God. In other words, Templeton's outrage at that picture presupposes that there is something unfair about it which means that there is a fairness some standard of fairness that there's something not right about this which presupposes that there is a right there's something not good about this photo which presupposes that there is an objective good all of this is found in what's called the moral argument for the existence of god c.s lewis writes about this in his book mere christianity which is an incredibly classic and foundational work. If you've not read, I highly recommend Mere Christianity. I devoured it in one day, sitting in a cafe with free coffee refills all day long. And and I was blown away by his argument that no matter which culture you survey, no matter when throughout history, that all of humanity has lived with a knowledge of how life ought to be. What kind of of standard should we pursue as humans? How I ought to be treated by others. And the only way this is possible is by appealing to a standard that exists above and beyond how we actually live. What is observable in our reality. Let me give you an example. Two brothers walk downstairs, they wake up in the morning, they walk downstairs from their bedroom and they look and on the counter is a plate and on the plate are two donuts. And the older brother walks over and he takes both donuts. And the younger brother says, hey, that's not not fair, exactly. And a mini version of World War III breaks out right there in the kitchen. And what has just happened is some kind of an appeal to a standard that exists outside of that scenario. What what has just happened is some kind of a standard that not only exists outside of that scenario, but it actually exists outside of the way human beings actually treat one another. It's an invisible standard. It's a standard that exists actually nowhere. We never see fairness universally applied. We never see rightness and oughtness universally applied. And yet, when you're on the wrong end of an equation, you say, that's not fair. You're appealing to some higher standard, some standard that exists outside of us. And C.S. Lewis does such a great job of saying, that is actually an argument for the presence of a good and a loving creator. He writes this, he says, my argument against God, this was before he came to faith, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? And so we have to understand that even the outrage at the pain and suffering in this world indicates something that ought to be. Now, there is no way that this outrage is a product of uh, social Darwinism. There's no way that this outrage is a product of evolution. Because that language only, that, those concepts only provide us with language that talks about what is. What we do witness. It, it is a world where the older brother does take two donuts. It's a world where the strong actually do whatever they want to do, right? It's a world where if you can get away with it, you do it. And and so that's the language that social Darwinism allows us to talk about, but never what ought to happen, never what should happen, never what is right or just or fair. These things are, are arguments for the existence of a good God. Now, let me go after the real philosophical knot to untangle around pain. And I'm going to guess that many of you have heard this before. This was something that I was presented with as a philosophy major in college. Way back in the days of the Greeks when they were philosophizing, Epicurus says this. He says, either God wants to abolish evil and cannot, or he can but doesn't want to. If he wants to but cannot, he's impotent. If he can and does not want to, he's wicked. All right, this brings us to the next point. We're going to try to unpack that a little bit and show that it's a false dichotomy. The next fill-in on your outline, point two, God has the power to abolish evil. So God is all-powerful. The Bible is very clear. It's not just that God is mighty. The Bible makes it clear that God is almighty, that God is omnipotent, that, that all power is his, right? Strength is not the issue in this conversation, And yet, because God is all-powerful, there are some things he cannot do. So this is where it gets a little interesting. God's unlimited power limits him. I'll give you a couple of examples. He can't make mistakes. Weaker beings can make mistakes all day. Can I get an amen? But he is a perfect being. He he has all strength. He is not weak at all. Therefore, he cannot make mistakes. Uh, he cannot make logical inconsistencies. Now, weaker beings like you and I, we can be logically inconsistent all the time. Again, can I get an amen? I mean, this is where we are, right? This is how we live. But, uh, but God, it's impossible for him to be logically inconsistent. Why? Because he's the one who set up the rules of logic. He's perfect. He can't uh, exist outside of those rules. So here's where the, this kind of rubber meets the road here. It matters greatly when we talk about the issue of freedom. In other words, God has chosen to provide us freedom. He has created the universe. He has created humanity with this as as a chief value. He's, He's imbued within our nature, freedom. But it's logically inconsistent for him to make creatures who are free without giving them the choice. And so because he has given us choice... Humanity is free to choose the good or the right, and we're also free to choose the bad and the wrong. And, and that's sort of the, the, the crux of all of this rub. Let, let, let me tell you this, it, it matters, right? You're free to jump off the cliff and dive into the lake and not see the logs submerged underneath the surface of the water. And then pain and suffering ensue from that choice. Thirteen years ago, I was driving my family after a a dinner out. We were driving through Seattle. We got T-boned by a drunk driver. Now, I I was free to take my family out that night. I was free to go to the restaurant, free to begin to drive home. All kinds of freedom that I was experiencing that evening. The the other uh, driver was also free to drink and free to get behind the wheel. And then pain and suffering ensue. So you recognize that this idea of freedom, right, it's, it's, it's right woven within the fabric of the universe. God has given us freedom and choice, and among those choices must be the freedom to choose rightly or wrongly, selfishly or unselfishly, goodly or badly, obediently or rebelliously, etc. So it's logically impossible for us to be free but have no possibility of pain. I'm free to hit my thumb with a hammer. I'm free to be in pain. Like that—that's just kind of the base level of this. Now, why is it important that God chose to give us freedom? The reason why this is important is because love is impossible without freedom. He had to build freedom, wire it deep within us, because love is the highest value. Love is the reason that anything exists in the first place. Love is the reason God created the universe. Love is the reason God created you and I. Love is the highest value. It's the pinnacle value. Jesus is love incarnate. This is why there's anything rather than nothing at all. And so I want you to see that for him, this is a chief value because he wanted love. Because he wanted to create the universe in love, because he wanted to love the universe and, be, and love humanity, be loved by humanity, he chose to make us free. And again, I'll just get, kind of give you a, an, an example. This is probably true in many of your lives. It's true in mine. 21 years ago, there was a miraculous and beautiful occurrence that happened. There was this, this beautiful young woman named Jody, stood at an altar with this goofy youth pastor named Mike. And we professed our love for one another and we exchanged rings on that day. And we said, we're, we're going we're to commit these vows before the Lord because we want to choose to enter into a, a relationship of love that lasts for our entire lives. So that, that was the, the choice that we made. And it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, let me be honest with you. It's not beautiful if somebody was holding a shotgun to her head, right? It's not beautiful if she was manipulated into that moment. It's not beautiful if she was like if she misunderstood, like, whoa, whoa, I thought this was the line for the free yogurt. You're like, what, why, you know, what's going on? Like all of a sudden, if if there are these other factors in place, it's not beautiful. It's not wonderful. Why? Because it's not love. God wants love love. He wants us to be free to choose love. And when he creates humanity, he declares it is good, right? It's good because there's this freedom, there's a good because there's this choice. And because there's choice, we're free to choose the good, we're free to choose the bad and 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 we've chosen poorly. And the choice to choose poorly has had its repercussions work themselves out biologically, and geologically, and ecologically, and economically, and socially, and morally throughout the whole history of the world. And a vast majority of pain and suffering in this world can be traced to moral sin. Choices to kill, to slander, to be selfish, to be sexually reckless, to break promises, to be greedy and proud, etc. And I want you to think for a moment about that photo of the woman holding her dead baby. Don't forget the choices of the warlords who steal and hoard the food that gets dropped by humanitarian efforts. Don't forget the choices of the corrupt politicians in the world who rape their own poor for greed. Don't forget the shiploads of produce that go bad every day while babies starve to death around the world because of the limits of capitalism. Please don't forget that there is always a history behind every situation and that history is always filled with choices that humans have made. So you can't love without the possibility of pain. At its base level, think about the pain that comes from choosing to love someone who doesn't love you back. I mean, even the venture of love is fraught with the potential for pain. And now, you're welcome to fault God for not taking away our freedom, for not taking away our ability to choose. That's fine, you can do that. But God cannot take away the freedom to choose Without undoing the opportunity for love, which is the very reason that he created the universe in the first place. So, there is a more helpful way to view God's power. Point number three. God's power means victory beyond and through tragedy. God's power, his almighty power, means victory beyond and through tragedy. And this story you've heard again and again, and many of you have lived it. Horrible things happen in life, and God works in and through them to produce something good and beautiful and powerful. This is evidence of his goodness and power. You know, really, anybody can make good things happen out of good things. God is the one who can make good come out of bad, who can make victory come out of suffering. People emerge from jail reborn. An overdose needs, leads to new life. A dad's cancer ends up reconciling him with his family. And the list goes on and on and on. Many of you could give testimony to this. The Apostle Paul is speaking about this when he writes in Romans eight twenty eight. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together. In fact, what I'd love to have you do is circle the words all things and then circle the word together and draw a little arrow between those things. All things work together for good. Now, I, I just want to pause for a second because I think there has been, through the years, there's, there's been a misunderstanding of this verse and, and then some poor theology that's been birthed from it. What the verse doesn't say is every single scenario will create a singular good. This is not like a, 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 a one-to-one equation where tragic and then an equal sign, good. Like, that's not what Paul is saying. Now he's saying all things work together. In other words, the equation is much more mysterious and complex, and it's not just one for one, but it's, but it's that tragic experience goes into the huge pool of all of the things that God is working on in your life, of all the experiences that you're having. He's, he's taking care of all of the ways that you're growing and learning and developing, and yes, at some point, there will be good that comes out of it, but it's not a straight one-to-one. It's much more mysterious and complex than that. Does this make sense? I say this because I want to get some of you off the hook. Some of you are still trying to torture God in, into this one-to-one equation. You're like, that horrible thing happened. When, when my loved one overdosed on drugs, that horrible thing happened. And, and I still, I, I can't see the good that has come from that one thing. And the Bible never says that that one thing will produce good. The Bible says that all things work together to produce good in your life. Can I get an amen for it? It's a, and, and we can talk more about this. In fact, all these points, there are books and volumes, and there's weeks and weeks we could do on each one of these topics. So, I mean, there's, there's definitely more, and I'm going pretty fast here. Let me take the most extreme example that there is, murder. A murder is always an evil thing. The murder of an innocent person or a good person is even a more evil thing. The murder of a perfect person would be an example of the greatest evil. Now we have Jesus on the cross. Perfect, innocent, accused of senseless crimes, crimes he did not commit. Went to the cross for actually your crimes, my crimes, your sins, my sins. Not his sins, ours. And yet, from that horrific, tragic painful. That was agonizing. What, what, the road that Jesus walked, what, I mean, the greatest example of inhumanity and, and, and just demonic revelry in what Jesus experienced in that torture and that crucifixion. And yet from that tragic occurrence, the greatest victory the universe has ever known Forgiveness of all sins, salvation now on the table as an invitation for every single human being. This is an incredible example of how God can, even out of the worst possible thing, create the most beautiful, powerful victory. Now, what if that's not a singular occurrence, friends? What if that's actually a paradigm for how the enemy is defeated again and again and again? What if that's actually a paradigm for how God brings his victory into this world again and again and again? His power shown by allowing great beauty, glory, majesty, and power be revealed through times of suffering and pain. Please remember that the greatest Christians in history seem to regard the sufferings that they have endured not as pulling them away from the Lord, but as bringing them closer to God and so becoming a good thing instead of the worst thing. So we see that our outrage against suffering points to the existence of a good God, that God is all-powerful, that his powerful is revealed uh, through bringing victory out of suffering. Uh, The next thing that we want to take a look at is that God is good, in fact, much better than we realize, that his goodness is is evident if we have the eyes to see it, but it's actually there's a deeper goodness, there's a richer goodness than we can experience in this life. And, and we've talked about this over lake before, I'm sure this is going to come up again, that what we call good tends to have a few characteristics associated with it. What we call good means it's convenient for me. What we call good means it's comfortable for me. In fact, if I could just really be clear and, and you guys just give a shout if this is true, what we mean by when we say it was good, we mean I like it, right? We, if I like it, it's, it's good. And, uh, and, and that's sort of our prevailing definition. <clears throat> God is much gooder than that. Now, if you're a parent, you know that as your kids, maybe in different seasons of their life, if they could, say, define what they wanted, their, their dietary regulations, they would want candy all day, every day, and maybe ice cream, right? Candy and ice cream, and, and that would be good by their definition, but as a parent, you're like, that's actually not good. That will create all kinds of problems. Here, some spinach. That's good. They're like, the spinach is not good. No, it's good. Like, the, the different definition of what good is. When my son Caleb, we, we had just moved here in 2004 and begun the journey here at Overlake. My son Caleb was two years old. And I remember we had met some family friends and we had a, like a play day together and then we were actually uh, going out to a movie later. So we're, we had just parked at the Bella Bottega movie theaters and we're kind of walking in. My little two-year-old son, I'm holding his hand, and, and he points to his nose and he says, a shoe, a shoe." And I thought he was like pretending to sneeze. So I was like, oh, buddy, you're so funny. Yeah, I get it. (laughs) I chew. Okay, let's go watch the movie. And so we go in, we watch the movie. And uh, on the way out, he points to his nose again. He says, a shoe, a shoe. And and so we're kind of like quizzically talking about that. And we we asked my daughter, who's a couple years older, she's four, say, hey, what do you think Caleb's talking about here? And she says, "I think he has something in his nose." And so we we have him tilt his head up, and we look in. He had taken one of my my daughter's Polly Pocket shoes, and he had shoved it right up there. And and then he was just curious that it was up there, you know, and just wanted us to know there's a shoe uh, in my nose. And so, you know, Jody and I, we tried unsuccessfully, gently to, to remove the shoe from his nose, and and I mean, it, it was just it, tiny little features, right? He's just a little two-year-old, so so we couldn't do it, and so we ended up taking him to the, uh, you know, we just went to the hospital, but it was after hours, so, you know, they bring us into the emergency room, and it's filled, like every bay in the emergency room is filled, there's, there's people all around, and and the doctor begins to try to remove the shoe from Caleb's nose now now Caleb was uncooperative he was resisting and fighting and writhing and, you know, grunting and using every muscle he had to fight the doctor as the, the poor doctor tried to just, with tweezers, try to remove the shoe, and, and he, he was unsuccessful. So he calls a couple of nurses over to help hold Caleb down. So there's a doctor and three nurses, you know, holding legs and arms, and, and the doctor now has, like, forceps or something, like the medical equivalent of needle nose pliers, uh, trying to get in the nose, and, and Caleb is like like wailing I mean he is just like screaming and and so then the doctor asked if Jody and I would come over and assist the nurses in holding him down and I'll never forget so I had to come over and I'm like hey buddy I I gotta hold you still and he looks at me his eyes filled with terror and he's like you too (laughs) you're in on this you know What's going on? And he just begins to curse with his innocent, you know, two-year-old vocabulary, like, ah, the wrath of heaven, you know. And he's just so angry, he can't believe the betrayal that mom and dad are are with these people, and and this this is injustice, right? And finally, the doctor has this idea. It was a brilliant idea. He actually has a a tiny catheter that he snakes up Caleb's nose and then inflates it with air, just a tiny little bubble, and and then gently pulls the catheter out, and it just kind of brings the shoe out with it. And the doctor hands the shoe to Caleb, and Caleb takes the shoe, and he slams it on the ground. He stomps on it right in the middle of the emergency room, and the whole place goes up like, oh, yeah! victory. (laughs) I'm sure like halfway through, they're thinking to themselves, what are they doing to that kid, right? (laughs) Now, during that whole operation, Caleb, he, he could not see that our hearts were good toward him. He could not see that not only were our motives good toward him, but what we were trying to accomplish through that season was also good for him. We did not want that polypocket lodged in his frontal lobe, right? We wanted that out of his system. And, and so even though our hearts were good, and even though what we were purposing, what we were trying to affect in his life was good, he could not see it because of his limited two-year-old perspective. I, I wanna be very gently honest with you. That is our limited human perspective. That's, that's us all the time. We cannot see. We do not know. So we have to trust that God's heart for us actually is good. That what he is trying to affect in our lives, through our lives, the purpose that he's pursuing with us and through us, that is also good. And so we, we have to choose to trust that this is his goodness being revealed in us. He's much, much better than we give him credit for. Why? Because he can see the big picture. He sees how this stuff affects not just us, but all of our loved ones and all of our friends. He sees how this stuff not just affects affects my life, but it impacts the next generation life and the next generation after that. And not only that, he sees how it works itself out of the whole course of my lifetime and then into and on to into eternity. And so there's no way with our limited human perspective we could see all of the ways that God is at work in and through moving and affecting his goodness in our lives point number five god's goodness means that he is present with us in our suffering he's present with us god enters into the agony alongside of us his answer to the problem of suffering is that he came right down into it many christians try to get god off the hook for suffering but god put himself on the hook so to speak on the cross of calvary The answer to suffering is not an answer at all. It's an answerer. It's Jesus himself on the cross. He offers himself. If you've ever asked the question, God, where are you in this? Jesus answers that question. I'm right here. Philosopher Peter Kreeft says this, that in suffering, Jesus is there, sitting beside us in the lowest places of our lives. Are we broken? He was broken like bread for us. Are we despised? He was despised and rejected of men. Do we cry out? We can't take it anymore. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Do people betray us? He was sold out himself. Do people turn from us? They hid their faces from him as from a leper. He descends into all our hells. He is gassed in Auschwitz. He's sneered at in Johannesburg. He's mocked in North Ireland. He's enslaved in Sudan. He's bombed in a cafe in Jerusalem. He's the one we love to hate, yet he has chosen to return love. Every tear we shed becomes his tear. He may not wipe them away yet, but he will. Revelation 21 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. If your friend is dying, the thing she needs most is not an explanation. What she needs most is a friend. She wants you to be with her. She's terrified of being alone more than anything else. And so God has not left us alone. And for that, we can choose to love him. And that brings me to two responses. First response, that we would cultivate a thankful heart. The challenge is that we would choose right now to begin to cultivate a thankful heart. Because the reality is, and this is, I I believe this is true universally, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what socioeconomic level you're at, it doesn't matter the opportunities you've been afforded. The truth of the matter is, as a human being, the human predicament is this, that there will be things in your life that are joy-inducing and wonderful, and there will be things in your life that are difficult and painful that will cause suffering. This is, this is true for all of us. I used to think of life a little bit like a roller coaster, that we would go, go through high times and that we would have low times. And that's true. I think sometimes we, we experience high times, sometimes we experience low, low times. But the metaphor that I find much more challenging and accurate is more like the, the two rails of train tracks. That one side is the side of joy, the other side is the side of grief, and they're both true consistently in all seasons of our life. Yes, it's true that sometimes uh, the car of your life might be leaning on one rail more than the other rail, but in virtually every season of life, there are things that are difficult and things that bring joy, right? There are things that are wonderful and things that you wrestle with and suffer through, and this is one of those human predicament realities. Author Tim Hansel, one of my friends, his story is in a climbing accident, he fell about five stories in a crevasse, and he shattered all of the vertebrae in his back, and he lives in chronic pain. And in his journey with Jesus, he has coined the phrase, pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. Right? The choice is ours. To choose how it is that we are going to respond to the painful situations in our lives. And the question is, will we thank God even for the pain that we experience in this lifetime? The Apostle Paul seems to indicate that we will. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17, he says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. When you look at that verse, you see that there's a contrast. The troubles are momentary. The glory is eternal, right? The stuff we suffer through now, he he calls it light. It's light, it's momentary. What's being achieved in our life, it's eternal, and it's weighty, and it's wonderful. And so we can pray, and we ought to pray, Father, deliver us from evil. But please remember how that model prayer ends. Jesus teaches us to pray, for thine is the glory and the honor forever and ever. And we can allow suffering to make us like God, to mold us into his character. We can allow pain to grow us, to be more like Jesus. Jesus suffered. He suffered, and a case could be made, he suffered more than anyone ever suffered because all of the suffering he experienced. But he did it for the joy set before him. He did it for you. He did it for me. So that this life would be as close to hell as anyone ever need get. St. Teresa says this, that in light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth, a life filled with the most atrocious tortures on earth, will be seen to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel. And we're not there yet. And we don't see that yet, but the promise is that in light of eternity, that will be our perspective. I I would also challenge you with this thought that pain-free does not equal joy-filled. Pain-free does not equal joy-filled. That the goal, right, that that Jesus invites us into is a life that is filled with joy. The the Bible says, for the joy set before him, Jesus chose the road of the cross. That, That it actually is possible for us to have more joy and a fuller joy, a richer joy, a deeper joy because of and in light of the suffering that we endure in fact as I've walked a road with some of you and and we walk through really difficult seasons it's a firm belief of mine that joy and grief sit side by side in the human heart and this is a gift and a blessing that God gives us so I want to I want to challenge you that that we choose how we respond to our suffering and the challenge is that we would cultivate a thankful heart There are always a couple of choices when difficult things happen. We can cling to God or we can turn from God. We can become better or we can become bitter. Do we lean into relationships or do we isolate? Does it increase our empathy or our entitlement? And the list goes on and on and on. So my challenge is that in light of difficulty, in light of suffering and pain, we choose to cultivate a thankful heart for the Lord. Response number two, cultivate care for others in pain. Cultivate care for others in pain. That the Lord comforts us in our struggles and then we comfort others in the face of theirs. Second Corinthians 1.4 says, He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When others are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. Now, I don't know exactly how you're wired if you think of the worst possible tragedy that could happen in your life. If you're like me, because I, I, I've thought about what that would be in my life, it would involve my family. My, my, my chief joys, right, in this life, my relationship with my family, and therefore the, the source of what I would consider to be the ultimate tragic occurrence. So imagining something happening to them, to me that would be the worst. And even as I say that, I know that I've, I've walked a road with some of you, like the Gertzes and their loss of Maggie or the Bruners with Chaz. I think about the Thomases with Micah. I think about the Robertsons and their son. I, I just, I'm inspired by the choices that I see these families make as they continue to lean into Jesus, as they continue to pursue a life where they trust that God is working good, that he is working power, that he's working meaning and purpose through even these horrific tragedies. I read a story this week, and and it really kind of knocked my feet out from under me. Several years ago, Mark had been shoveling snow in his driveway when his wife said she was going to move the car and ask him to watch their young daughter, a toddler. And as the car backed out, Sliding on the snow, they were suddenly thrust into the worst nightmare that parents can imagine. Their baby was crushed beneath the wheel. So deep was Mark's initial despair that he had to ask God to help him breathe, to help him eat, to help him function at the most fundamental level. And God did. God was present in the midst of their pain. Mark knew what it was like to cling to God at the moment of his most desperate need. And over the next several years, he emerged slowly. He ended up quitting his job and going to seminary. He now devotes all of his time to ministering to people who have experienced the worst horrors that life can dish out. He remains deeply committed to God, the God who infused his marriage with an unbreakable love, the God who deepened their faith in him, the good God who holds their deceased child and who awaits their arrival in eternity when every tear will be wiped away. What I want you to know is that just because it's reasonable to believe in a good God in the face of the pain and suffering in this world doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. In fact, I would be very, very frank with you and tell you that the closer you get to pain and suffering, the, the, the closer your experience in this life gets to pain and suffering, the harder I do believe it will be. But do you do realize that Jesus himself prepares us for this? That the words of Jesus, they actually are words of guidance, they're words of help for when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Because right before the crucifixion, Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and by proxy to you and me, when he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, he says, I have overcome this world. In this world, you will have trouble. As much as as we Americans don't want to believe that, Jesus is saying it. Saint Ecl... it's gonna be difficult. There will, there will be seasons of incredible difficulty. You're gonna have trouble in this world. But he says, take heart. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Friends, that's my prayer for you. It's my prayer for me, is that we would so join in this thing with Jesus that we would recognize he has overcome the world. And because we are in him, we are overcomers as well. And so my challenge is that you would cultivate a thankful heart. My challenge is that you would receive comfort from the Lord and so be able to comfort others in their pain. And by doing so, that you would be an overcomer. Why don't you do this? Why don't you stand with me right now? And we're going to spend some time praising Jesus. We're going to be thanking him for being so good to us, thanking our our, our God for being a good father. But what I want to do is I want to spend some time in prayer right now. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes and let's pray. And Jesus, right now, I I just pray. And I just, Holy Spirit, I invite you to move through this room. You know the hearts that are here that are wrestling with pain. You know that there, there are a family or two right now that are impacted. Their pain is caused because a loved one committed suicide. You know the families that are in this room, That the pain in their world is because a loved one has experienced an overdose. You know that there is relational distress in this room right now. You know that there, there's tension in marriages. You, Lord, you, you see so clearly into our souls. You see where our wrestle is. You see where our, our struggles are, where our weaknesses are, our brokenness lies. And so, Jesus, I lift all of this pain and this suffering up to you right now. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would move powerfully in the midst of it, that you would move in our lives, and even now that you would show us how you are working all of this and all of our experiences in this life. And you are you're at work pulling out greater purpose, greater meaning, greater victory, greater glory. Lord Jesus, allow us to trust you knowing that you see all of the angles and all the ramifications, and and we don't. But allow us, Jesus, to be a part of your kingdom work in this world. We receive your comfort today, and we ask that you'd show us how to be comfort to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.